Welcome to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett McGarry. This week, I've got a review of what turned out to be one of my favorite movies in years. Plus, I'm Jeff Braun. I checked out Eddie Murphy's new Christmas movie, and I took a second look at the new Indiana Jones movie. I also watched a movie that's pretty good, and another one that's kind of meh, but is also sort of par for the course. But let's start with the movie review of the good one. Have you ever gone into a movie with high expectations and it falls short? Or you go in with lower expectations and then it turns out you loved it. Or you go in with high expectations and those expectations are not just met but surpassed. Well, this week... I have a spoiler-free movie review, and I'm so excited to share it because my already high expectations for this film were obliterated, shattered, nuked, nuked by this almost 70-year-old cinematic icon. Godzilla. Minus one. Godzilla Minus One, the 33rd Godzilla movie from Toho Studios in Japan. It opened in theaters this past weekend and has been extended for another week. It was only supposed to be in theaters for a week, but it opened to a solid $11.4 million domestically. It's currently up to $41 million worldwide, which is not bad for a movie that cost $15 million to make. It's at 97 on Rotten Tomatoes, 98% audience score. And again, it was only supposed to play for a week, but it's been extended, and I'm so happy about that because it rules and it begs to be seen and heard on a big screen. To be clear... This one has nothing to do with the more recent American Godzilla fare that we've seen from Legendary Pictures and Warner Brothers over the last decade in their Monsterverse, which includes the Apple TV Plus show Monarch Legacy of Monsters, which is really good. And just in time to coincide with the release of this new Japanese film, Warner's released the full trailer for Godzilla X Kong, The New Empire, which looks fun, but also looks kind of silly. This is a new Godzilla story set in a familiar spot, and time, and it is not silly. Post-World War II Japan. Kind of like the original from 1954, although that one was set in the 50s. This one is immediate post-World War II Japan in the 1940s. And yes, the whole thing is in Japanese, so subtitles. Screaming is screaming in any language, Brett. Yeah, I, it's fine. It's fine. Like it, it's, it, it adds to the authenticity, I think. The country is in an economic state of zero, and then Godzilla shows up and sets them back even further into negative territory, hence minus one. Again, no spoilers here, just some basics. We meet a young Japanese fighter pilot named Koichi, or last name Shikishama, as he's referred to through most of the movie. He's just trying to get home after the war, and he bumps into a young woman named Noriko, who is caring for a toddler named Akiko, who's not hers. And together, they just sort of become a family as they try to pick up the pieces of their war-ravaged lives. Shikishama eventually gets a job that takes him out onto the water with a group comprising of a scientist, a former military captain, and a young buck who wishes he could have been in the war. He's desperate to prove himself. And since they're out on the water, eventually they encounter Godzilla. And he is not here to play nice. There are no other monsters. He's not here to be our pseudo defender to take out the trash he is the trash he is a force of nature and he is mad he is scary he looks mean he is mean he lays waste 
to all in his path. So now everyone needs to come together to figure out what they're going to do about this threat. And what a threat. Like, we've seen Godzilla and all sorts of monster and kaiju destruction before, but this felt different. And why is that? Well, because we have human characters we actually care about. Turns out if you have good human characters, then you care about the action. Like, the recent Godzilla and Kong movies are fine, with Kong Skull Island being the best of the bunch. And, Bron, I know that that's your favorite of the MonsterVerse, and that's probably one of the reasons why that one was probably the best one, is it had decent human characters. It had some, yeah, some cool human characters, especially a John C. Riley, where, like, people were honestly saying, oh, he might actually get an Oscar nomination from this movie. (laughs) Because he was just, it's a King Kong movie, and... Uh, an old, disheveled, hairy guy stole the show. Yeah. Which is wild. And the, the human characters in the first movie were okay. But after that, yeah, and like Kong versus Godzilla, Godzilla versus Kong, the human characters in that were just uh, annoying irritants. It's like, get out of the way. I just want to see more smashy, smashy. And like, the, as far as those Godzilla movies go, like the first one was good in 2014. The second one was meh. Kong versus Godzilla was just big, dumb fun. And that's fine. Like, I enjoyed them all. You, but you look at a movie like Pacific Rim. And I recently watched it again for, I don't know, the how manyth time, directed by Guillermo del Toro. And that movie was his love letter to kaiju movies. He made this big, fun movie with heart where these monsters from the sea, from an interdimensional rift at the bottom of the ocean, come and wreak havoc. So humanity builds these giant robot machines to fight back. But it works because the human characters are great, particularly Idris Elba's character in that, who plays the leader of the military resistance. As an actor, he did not have to give his character the gravity that he did, but he plays that role deadly serious in Pacific Rim. So you believe in him. You believe in his integrity. You believe in how much he cares. And when he finally delivers his big speech, you know, the one where he's like, we are canceling the apocalypse in the hands of another actor. That line might have just been the cheesiest thing ever, but coming from Elba, in that role, you believe in him, you believe in the cause, and in each other. Good human characters matter. So back to Godzilla Minus One. We're introduced to real human beings dealing with real human feelings, survivor's guilt, shame, fear, just trying to find their way, trying to find redemption, and trying to come together in the face of seemingly impossible odds to stop something that threatens their entire country's existence. So when Godzilla does show his face to wreak havoc, it is chaos and it is scary. I did not cheer for Godzilla I did not take joy in watching him smash. Although, kudos to the effects team on this. Director Takashi Yamakazi also wrote the movie and was the VFX supervisor. And what he and his team accomplished on a $15 million budget, who knows? Like, Ron, have you even you seen the trailer for this at least, right? Yeah. And would you have known that was a $15 million no, that's, movie? that's crazy. It looks like a $150 million movie. Yeah, I'm just blown away. Like, especially when you see Hollywood budgets commonly now ballooning into the 200 250 $300 million range. I heard Fast X was $400 million. Get out of here! And it's just like, that's just a waste of money. Wow. I like those movies, but it's like, you should have spent it on, you know, anything else. And half of that's <laughs> probably going to the cast. Yeah, they do have a huge cast, and they get those paychecks, you know, go up over time, and they've most of them been there for at least seven of the ten movies. But still, that's (laughs) insane. Yeah. So you look at those movies, and then you look at this, and you think, like, this $15 million Godzilla looks just as good as anything else on the screen. Like an episode of She-Hulk 
which is one of the worst looking things to come out in a long time. Every episode cost over $20 million. So that's ridiculous. So you look at how good it looks. That's great, but the the effects in this movie carry emotional weight because you don't want to see the characters you've come to care about get hurt or have their livelihoods ruined. And when he unleashes his fury, it's so frightening. And good Lord, his atomic heat ray, when he lets that thing fly, I actually screamed out loud in the theater, holy sh... Like, I... I I couldn't believe what happened. Like, I'll admit, they did some really cool stuff with his atomic breath in the American movies. But in Minus One, he's more like the Death Star. How do you stop that? How the heck do you stop that? So from there, the fight is on, and it is amazing. I just, I cannot say enough good things about this movie. I can't believe how much I enjoyed it. Like, I went in expecting to enjoy Godzilla Minus One. All the reviews are good. Like I said, 97% on Rotten Tomatoes. Many of them are glowing. I've watched a bunch of reviews on YouTube. They all say it's amazing. It's a masterpiece. It's one of the best movies of the year, if not the best movie of the year. And I thought, come on, a Godzilla movie? But now that I've seen it, I agree. It's one of the best movies I've seen in years. And that comes with the caveat, of course, that I don't see as many new movies as Jeff Braun here does, but still, it's just excellent. And again, it's the human characters that make this movie work. And when it's all said and done, it's just a thing of beauty. It's shockingly emotional. The redemption arc is front and center. It's scintillating. I cried. I did not expect that from a Godzilla movie. And I wasn't the only one. Like, there were many people around me who were outright sobbing. So I guess. My one nitpick, it's a bit slow at times, especially in the second act. I think they could have picked up the pace and probably shaved off 10 minutes or so, but it only runs about two hours, so it's not like it's an onerous film to get through. Simply put, simply put, it's the best Godzilla movie I've ever seen. I am by no means an expert on all things Godzilla. I haven't even seen the previous Toho movie from 2016, Shin Godzilla, which I hear is great. But I've seen a fair chunk of these movies over the years, and some of them are just so ridiculously cheesy. They all have their merits. Even the one from 98, directed by Roland Emmerich, that was not Godzilla. But it was still a fun monster movie. This one takes us back to Godzilla's roots, released 69 years after the original to commemorate the 70th anniversary of a creature who began as the living embodiment of atomic war and its consequences. And in this new one, he's still that, but he's also the living embodiment of the fear of a nation that feels abandoned by its leadership after the war. And in spite of how terrifying he is, Godzilla is pretty cool in this. Like, it's a sight and sound to behold on the big screen. See it while you can. I don't know how long this is going to be in theaters. I think even if you don't care for monster movies, there's something we can all take away from this. And for me, that's the wonder of cinema. That a $15 million movie from Japan accomplished more than anything I've seen Hollywood put out this year. And I won't be surprised if we see Godzilla's name at the Oscars. I will give Godzilla minus one, four and a half couch cushions out of five. You going to see this before it's out of theaters, Jeff? Yeah, I think I'm going to go this weekend. Now that I've heard you glow on about it like that, that's a, that's amazing. I, I'm excited for it. I'm always scared when I, when I go off on something like this that I'm overhyping it, but... I feel like pretty solid in this recommendation considering every video I've watched, every, pretty much every review I've read it, that is good is like glowing, like, I, you got to see this movie good. So, Did you like it more or less than Top Gun Maverick? 
Because you went off on Top Gun yeah, Maverick last year. That's I remember the that. last movie that I was this excited about. <laughs> I, uh, I'm i not prepared to, to make that call. That's yeah. all right. I think Top Gun Maverick is more fun. Well, yeah. So that would I probably enjoy that more. But this one, it 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 was just such a surprise. Yeah. So I think I'd have to see it again to see how rewatchable it is. But the emotional punch that this movie packs is stunning, and it's so good, and it looks great, and everything about it is awesome. Godzilla <laughs> minus one, four and a half couch cushions out of five. Up next, we switch from giant monsters destroying Japan to Eddie Murphy and candy canes. You're listening to the Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff. He's Brett. And every year there are dozens of new Christmas movies released on streaming platforms. And this is one of them. It's Prime Video's Candy Cane Lane starring Eddie Murphy. What's your Christmas wish? I just want to win this thing. I'll take it. Signature, please. Ignore all the fine print. It's like you're signing your life away. Merry Christmas. Yeah, Merry Christmas. Oh, it will be. <laughs> there were a few red flags right up front when I started watching Candy Cane Lane last night. Number one, Eddie Murphy has a spotty at best track record on the family film front. Started off all right back in the 90s and then got dire enough that he actually took that lengthy hiatus from acting altogether because, as he put it, uh, they just kept sending me bad scripts. What's the point of being in them? Uh, number two, his wife in the movie, played by Blackish's Tracy Ellis Ross, calls him by the wrong character name in the second scene of this movie, which I found baffling, <laughs> and I don't know how that slipped through, but it did. Uh, and number three, it's a Christmas movie set in California, and there's no snow. I mean, maybe it's a budget thing or a star thing. Uh, Eddie Murphy has famously become a, a set-in-his-way homebody and probably didn't want to travel to, like, Minneapolis to shoot a winter movie or something. That's conjecture on my part, but I know he's a guy who wants to go home and have dinner with his family, so we get a California Christmas movie, and after just a few minutes, I was kind of already resigned to the fact that this movie was going to be a dog, but as it turned out, it was actually decent enough to keep my attention for two hours. The premise is kind of bonkers, and it got a lot more bonkers than I was expecting. Murphy and his family live on a block in the town of El Segundo, California, where everyone goes way out there with their Christmas decorations each year. And they have a contest every year, and it looks like Murphy's won about half of the time, and the guy across the street, played terrifically by Ken Marino, who specializes in weasels and buffoons, wins the other half of the time, so it's basically going to be a head-to-head against these guys. And that's what you think it's going to be, like a warring neighbors movie, which is a pretty stock staple in a lot of Christmas movies. The movie also raises the stakes by having Murray get fired from his job at the beginning, and, and the decorating contest has become a televised thing with a 100000 prize, which of course would come in handy if you just lost your job. But then the movie takes a very weird turn. Murphy stumbles upon a pop-up Christmas store, which is run by the hilarious Jillian Bell, and he buys this gigantic 12 days of Christmas decoration, which soon comes to life, and unleashes live-action versions of all the characters from the 12 days of Christmas into the world. And if you know that song, a lot of it's birds. There are also these little Christmas figurines that come to life, and all this chaos ensues. The stakes are raised further, and basically Basically, Murphy and his family have to find the five golden rings from the song to make it all stop by Christmas Eve. So it, it got pretty weird, but it was also quite a bit of fun. And, you know, you haven't really seen anything like that in a Christmas movie before. Should also point out uh, Murphy's family's name in this movie. His name is Chris, like Christmas. Tracy Ellis, Ellis Ross's name is Carol. And their kids are Joy, Nick, and Holly. <laughs> 
I rolled my eyes at first, but then they actually brought it up and and made comments about it's like you guys all have Christmas names, so it kind of paid off. It wasn't just supposed to be some subtle thing that we may or may not have noticed. Um, there are a few other little subplots as well. One with Carol getting a promotion at her job. One with the elder daughter's college application, and one with the son's teenage son's failing math grades and his love of music. The music pays off in kind of a corny family movie way, but the math thing pays off uh, hilariously. It's the funniest part of the movie. Some jokes about it near the end. The movie's got a few laughs. It's not a riotous comedy or anything, but Eddie's always going to bring a few chuckles, uh, and he's also not so much of a diva that he doesn't let anyone else get laughs. Some comedians actually are like that, apparently. Eddie Murphy's not one of them. There are also some pretty good visual gags, like the six geese allaying are flying at the time, firing eggs out of their undercarriage at people like bombs and bullets. It is so weird to watch. Uh, the Christmas movie genre in particular leads to, you know, a lot of watching the same movies over and over again, so that can get a little tiresome. This was kind of new and different, worth a look. I would say three couch cushions out of five for Candy Cane Lane on Prime Video. And up next, I'll tell you about an un- another unusual Christmas movie that I watched over this past week that could go on to become a favorite of mine over the years. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett. He's Jeff. We are The Couch Potatoes. In a moment, we'll tell you what's new at the movies this weekend. And I finished watching that Squid Game The Challenge on Netflix, so I can quickly touch on that. But first, I finally got around to what many are calling a new Christmas classic. Not to be confused with the new movie Silent Night, which just came out this past weekend, David Harbour plays Santa Claus in Violent Night. There's bad men with guns watching us. Are you gonna help us, Santa? Yeah, Trudy. You're on my nice list. It's time for some season's beatings. Ah! This is not your typical mall, Santa. Who is he? What if he really is? There is no such thing as Santa. Stocking stuffers, I gotta watch. Ah! I believe in you, Santa. Violent Night, rated R. Released in December of 2022, it made $76 million worldwide off a $20 million budget, 74% on Rotten Tomatoes, came out on Crave on November 10th, so I finally got around to watching it. It's a bit of a mess at times, figuratively and literally, like it's gory, but it's a fun movie with way more heart than I expected. Basic plot, rich family gets together for Christmas, bad guys led by John Leguizamo invade the house to access the $300 million in the vault downstairs. This invasion happens just as Santa Claus has shown up to deliver some presents, and then he has to get naughty and deliver some of the aforementioned season's beatings. So it's a pretty simple story, but what surprised me about this movie is how emotional it was. Like, look, David Harbour is, let's face it, he's excellent in whatever he does. So if he's in a movie, he just makes it better by being there. But he brings this emotional weight to his role, complete with some sadness about his place in the world, the kinds of things kids want these days. Does he even matter anymore? Not just to the kids, but even at home. But as an actor, he's action actor. He's also proven himself competent, and he delivers here on both fronts on the emotional stuff. And when it's time to lay the smackdown, he gets sucked into the mix, whether he wants to or not, and has to dole out some Yuletide cheer all while this family drama is happening. But at its core, really, this movie is about a child named Trudy and her relationship with Santa and Christmas magic. Even Santa says it himself. 
Not really sure how it works. It's just Christmas magic. And no one knows how Santa does his thing, and that's the beauty of this movie, because in spite of its gratuitous and outlandish and violent scenario of Santa meeting out justice and vengeance, it's a movie about the magic of Santa, and there's something really joyous in that. There's something joyous in allowing yourself to remember what it was like to be a kid when Santa still came to visit you, and it made me emotional, and especially as somebody who... I don't have kids of my own, so I don't get to see them experience the joy of Santa coming to see them. So for me, it happens through movies uh, like this, and it's always a pleasant sort of surprise when it ha- when it's done well. And it has some interesting takes on just how Santa works, like how his magical list works. How can he pull up someone on his list so fast? And this movie solves that riddle brilliantly with this like magical digital-ish scroll that knows exactly who you need to pull up at any given time. Solves the riddle on how he can carry around so many presents. Solves the riddle on how he gets up and down the chimney. And it makes you believe in Santa once more. Not that you should have ever stopped believing in Santa. I've heard the movie described as Die Hard meets Home Alone. And I guess that's fair because there are, of course, elements of Die Hard with the group of invaders determined to steal everything. And then, of course, violence. But there's also some elements of Home Alone because there's this like late movie slapstick shenanigan scene. If anything, I would suggest maybe that that's as much of a weakness as a strength because I found this movie most effective when it was a bit more serious, but then it would get silly again with the violence, etc., and couldn't seem to pick the tone. But overall, I enjoyed it. Like, it was not setting out to win Best Picture. It's a fun Christmas movie. David Harbour's awesome. I will watch this frequently. They're talking about a sequel. I hope they do it and do it right. So I'll give Violent Night three and a half couch cushions out of five. Did you ever see this one, Jeff? No, I did not. And I think I think the gore was what uh, kept me from the door. Okay, fair. It's not like like vomit-inducing gore, but no, there there are some some pretty ah, pretty mean, nasty mean kills. Gore. Yeah, I, I, Christmas movies are funny because you know there's obviously well there's the Hallmark version, which let's not even go there, and then there's like the regular good Christmas movie, yeah. like a Home Alone or something like that. That you know or Elf. It's good family fun, and then there's these weird dark ones or whatever, and those ones, I I like some of them, but i got to kind of limit myself to them, so it's like I've already like planted my stake in the Bad Santa camp or whatever, <laughs> so it's like if I watch that and say like The Ref in a year, like that's enough nasty Santa for me. <laughs> that's good. totally fair. Uh, hey, let me just quickly tell you what's new at the movies this week, and you'll probably like the cast in this one, Jeff. Carrie Mulligan and Bradley Cooper star in Maestro. I love people so much that it's hard for me to be alone. That music, it keeps me glued to life. I don't even know how much you need me to know. This is the third movie in the last several weeks to get a short theatrical run before it debuts on Netflix. This one debuts on Netflix on December 20th and is based on a true and complex life-spanning love story. And it's getting good reviews. The next one takes us back to Japan for The Boy and the Heron. What is this place? This world is filled with the dead. I know it's a lie. But I have to see... It's an animated movie from Hayao Miyazaki, who's done all kinds of groundbreaking stuff with Ghibli Studios. It's getting excellent reviews. And new on Netflix, a movie that was recently in theaters for a short run with a star-studded cast featuring Julia Roberts, Ethan Hawke, Mahershala Ali, Mahala Harold, and Kevin Bacon. It's Leave the World Behind. In my line of work, you have to understand the patterns that govern the world. 
can help you see the future. And I knew something was coming. I don't understand. What do you mean? We are seeing ongoing cyber attacks across the country. The truth is much scarier. What is the truth? So there you go. That's what's new at the movies. And I'll just quickly tell you as well that I finished Squid Game The Challenge. So this is Netflix's reality game show version of the South Korean fictional show, uh, which was about people essentially like fighting to the death for a huge prize, a huge pot of cash, playing all these crazy games. Only one person left alive at the end of the game. Obviously, they're not killing people off, but they did have the same number of contestants, 456. So it started two weeks ago. They released five episodes in the first week and then another four episodes in the second week. And they held their final episode for this week. And they didn't start it until 8 p.m. my time. So that means that Netflix is now starting to follow the model that the Primes oh, and the, or the Apples and the Disneys yeah, are doing yeah. where they're starting, they're, okay, the new episodes on Wednesday or Friday or whatever, but you're not going to see it until the evening, which I don't necessarily mind, but I was like, I, I should have gone to bed and stayed, yeah. stayed up last night. It's Thursday as we record this and I stayed up to watch it and uh, that was my mistake. In theory, I don't mind either until the day <laughs> where I want to watch it at six and it's not ready until eight. You know yeah. what I mean? It's like, come on, I got other stuff to do. What are we, what are we doing here? Yeah. I'm, I'm done work at noon. I got to wait till eight o'clock. <laughs> I, I Give it, give it to me now. But so I'll say that I was really excited about this. The first few episodes, I couldn't believe how good it looked. Like the the, the effort that went into the the production design and the sets and the games, the way they were able to recreate some of the games, and then some of the new games they brought in were super exciting. Who knew that Battleship could be as exciting as it was in this particular context? But it dragged on in the later episodes. Ten episodes, way too long. Should have been. Eight max, maybe six. Yeah. And the finale was just underwhelming. The final game, um, it's different than in the, the series. And it's, I was just so bored. I was so underwhelmed. I was like, wow. So if you started watching it and you're thinking, I should finish that, don't bother. And if you haven't started, I think it's worth taking a look at just to see what they were able to do by recreating that show. But I wouldn't get too invested in it. It's just a total disappointment. And it looks like they're going to try to make a, another season. Anyway, up next, got to find out what Jeff thought about round two of Indy 5. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff. He's Brett. And Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny is out now on Disney+. Plus. So I rewatched it this week. I don't believe in magic, but a few times in my life I've seen things, things I can't explain, and I've come to believe it's not so much what you believe, it's how hard you believe it. Hang on! Give him hell, Indiana Jones! Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, PG-13. And of course, it came out this past summer, and we watched it and thought it was okay. Um, overall, after watching it twice, I still think it is quite a bit better than Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, but obviously not as good as the original trilogy. I do think that with all that time in between 3 and 4, that the OG3 still sort of stand as their own thing, and the legacy of the name Indiana Jones is not tainted by these two later, somewhat lesser movies. Uh, for a modern action movie starring an 80-year-old man with a bunch of baked-in expectations, I thought... Uh, 
Dial of Destiny was pretty much best case scenario for the Indiana Jones series. Uh, a couple of things I still don't like. Uh, the thing that honestly bummed me out the most was the stuff that happened to Indiana Jones in the years since Crystal Skull. Won't get into spoilers, but I, I, and I sort of get the rationale behind it as it pertains to the final act and how character stakes and motivation and all that goes, but it just seemed too harsh on Indy. I mean, this isn't the English patient. It's Indiana Jones, and we all came to have fun, and that's all we came to do. Uh, you know, there are also, through the action of this movie, some innocent lives that are lost that seemed meaner than I was expecting. I was like, like when a secretary gets shot or something like that in an office building, I was like, what are we doing in this Indiana Jones movie? Um, and so a lot of that came at the hands of Boyd Holbrook, who plays a henchman character, and he's kind of wasted in this movie. I don't know if there's stuff that was cut or something, but we learned nothing about the guy or why he's doing what he does, and I think he's just too big a name to have a nothing role like this. Antonio Banderas is in this movie, and again, uh, why are we hiring an actor of his stature for a role so small he's in the movie but if you're you know clicking on it because you like Antonio Banderas you are going to be disappointed and I got to say I kind of miss Steven Spielberg I think James Mangold the director is terrific and he did a good job but Spielberg would have you know added a little magic that no one else can bring can bring but on the like the things I like uh, list Mangold is up there too he's just a steady hand on the rudder which is all I guess we really needed and he held her well just would have been a little bit better with Spielberg obviously Harrison Ford I mean one day we're just going to never have a new Harrison Ford movie to watch. So I'm glad he's kind of rounding out his career with some of these greatest hit roles. Uh, this one and obviously the Star Wars movies he was in the last 10 years. Phoebe Waller-Bridge brings a lot of fun energy. Again, that's why we're here. I thought she fit in well. Uh, I said we'll never have another you know, Harrison Ford movie at some point. We'll also never have another John Williams movie at some point. So get that while you can, especially you know movies playing some of his greatest scores and Indiana Jones is... Top five for sure. We can uh, debate that at some point. Uh, and overall, it's just a good story, I thought, and well told. They put their foot on the gas, and they don't really take it off all the way through. The flashback sequence at the beginning looked cool. The de-aging tech is among the best we've seen, or second best, I guess, after Samuel L. Jackson in that first Captain Marvel movie. And there are a lot of good chases. I mean, there are maybe too many chases, but... They were fun to watch, I thought. So I'd still going to give it uh, three and a half couch cushions out of five, which for a part five in a series of 40 years after the original, I thought was still pretty impressive. Again, it's not going to be Raiders of the Lost Ark. You'd have been dumb going into theaters or turning this on thinking it would be. But it is a very worthwhile Indiana Jones movie. Still a lot of fun. I will also say that Disney Plus also has this documentary about Harrison Ford covering ostensibly his career, but it really just focuses on the Indiana Jones movies. I think it's the type of thing that's probably a DVD extra, although it's 90 minutes and the DVD version is usually like 20 minutes. So there's a lot of good behind the scenes footage on the new Indiana Jones and the original Indiana Jones movies. And they show some glimpses of Crystal Skull, but I don't think they even name it. So um, they're trying to kind of forget that one happened. Uh, very worthwhile doc, though, if you're a fan of the series, it's called Timeless Heroes and it's about uh, Harrison Ford. So good stuff there on Disney Plus with Indiana Jones. And finally, I watched a movie that keeps popping up in my Netflix. Maybe it was in the top 10 this past week. Maybe not. I don't know. I just know that I saw it and it's like it's come up enough that it finally grabbed my attention enough to watch it. It's The Forever Purge. The annual purge will conclude in three, two, one. People not hear the sirens? People are still purging. Anything goes. 
It's all over the country. The rules. There's no help. We need to fight. Have changed. Is the real purge. The forever purge. The forever purge. So The Purge is a cinematic phenomenon that debuted over 10 years ago in 2013. Simple premise, for 12 hours a year in the U.S., all crime is legal. Emergency services are disbanded. Go out, do your thing, get it out of your system, and then when morning arrives, The Purge is over. I think it's a great premise, that whole speculative fiction thing, the what-if our world was like this. Because it's not sci-fi, it's not superhero fantasy, it's just normal people in the normal world, but something is just a little bit different. For 12 hours a year, all bets are off. How would society work? Who would become violent? What steps would you take to protect yourself, to protect your family? And what if, what if you had to go out? You had to go out there during the purge. So the Forever Purge is the fifth movie. The Purge came out in 2013. Simple Story contained one house. The Purge Anarchy came out in 2014 and took us out into the streets. The Purge election year arrived in 2016. The first Purge in 2018... They all had increasing box office returns going from 89 million worldwide to 111, 119, then 137 million. None of them were tremendous critical successes, all in like the 40 to 60% range. There was also a two-season TV show on TV show on USA Network, which I hear was not not good at all. And then the Forever Purge arrived in 2021, and I had forgotten it happened. Not to say it was a middling performer. Delayed a year by the pandemic, it came out in 2021 and made a respectable $76 million worldwide. Not bad for a movie hamstrung by the pandemic. And the concept here is simple as and as frightening and as timely as ever. Like, what if the purge ends, but people keep purging? There's a faction of Americans who wants to truly purify their nation, so they continue the purge in what they call the forever purge, the ever after purge. And they basically set the, the country on fire. So we focus in on a family of immigrants who more or less just got to the States and now they're trying to get out. Look, it's a Purge movie. None of these movies are great. I think it's a great premise and I wish they could figure out how to do more and how to tell more of a powerful story. But in the end, I think they're all entertaining and I was entertained by this one. So I'll give it three couch cushions out of five. You can find The Forever Purge on Netflix. I'm Brett. He's Jeff. We are The Couch Potatoes. Remember, if it requires getting up off the couch, don't bother. Don't bother.